The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. I'm speaking to you from my homelands here in the Great Lakes. Welcome to Spirit Plate. In this space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Within this growing indigenous food movement, there is an incredible story of reclamation and intertribal solidarity. Powerful yet untold examples of native peoples resisting and thriving. The stories of our foodways are one of the greatest testaments of indigenous brilliance and our beauty of spirit. But before we can talk about indigenous people's food traditions, and contemporary efforts to revitalize their food systems. We have to understand the history of disruption that makes this work necessary. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Martin Reinhardt, professor of Native American Studies at Northern Michigan University, about the era of termination, which started in the early 1950s. Dr. Reinhardt tells us about the impact of the 1953 Termination Act and Indian Relocation Act of 1956 on treaty rights and indigenous people's foodways. Furthermore, we'll talk about how this attempt to suppress indigenous sovereignty led to a new era of intertribal activism. Before we start, could you please introduce yourself any way that you would like? And my name is Marty Reinhardt in English, and my family is Anishinaabe Ojibwe. We are part of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians on the U.S. side of the border and part of the Garden River First Nation of Ojibwe on the Canadian side of the border. And my wife and I and our daughters live in the Kitchena Mabene Zibing area, which is now known as Marquette, Michigan. And I work as a professor of Native American Studies at Northern Michigan University. Thank you. So to start us off today, I wanted to start off talking about the termination era. So the termination era took place roughly following World War II and continued into the late 1960s. Could you paint us a picture of what's happening in Indian country during this time? The federal government, when they sought to terminate the federal relationship with tribes, they were trying to get out of their responsibility. The trust relationship that had been established over years between the federal U.S. government and our tribes. And so the idea was that the people in the tribes then would assimilate into U.S. society. And it was very much along the same lines as the boarding school era, pulling the carpet out from under the tribes, doing away with tribal sovereignty and assimilating as quickly as possible Native people into U.S. society, getting them to be part of the workforce, getting them into schools, and really hoping, I think, for the people who believed in that program, that Native people would become 
more part of the fabric of the United States, and that would help them solve the quote-unquote Indian problem. And of course, for us, that was creating a worse problem. Because now, not only had we dealt with everything that came before, but the federal government was essentially getting out of its responsibilities to uphold trust relationships and support our tribes in dealing with the devastation that they had caused themselves. And so there's this kind of back and forth, always among people in non-Indian society, who believe that the best thing for Indians is to become essentially non-Indian. Kill the Indian, save the man. And so making us more American, less Indian, was their answer. And then there's the other folks who say, no, we need to help these folks revitalize their communities and really draw on the best that they have from their, their tribal traditions. Then you have these people who are caught in between, and that is the Native people themselves. That's where we, we tend to exist, is that ambiguous relationship between the do-gooders on both sides. They say that the road to hell is paved in good intentions. So I truly believe that some of these folks really do believe that that's what's best for us. But they should ask us, you know, what do we think is best for us? Certainly. So you started touching on this a little bit already, but what impact did this have on Indigenous Nations treaty rights? Can you give some examples of what treaty rights were lost as a part of this termination process? Well, you know, that's the thing. Even though the termination process was not supposed to impact treaty rights, it had to, right? It was designed to really take the wind out of tribal sails. And of course, you know, if you are a tribal fisher person or your tribal hunter or a forager or someone who just likes to, you know, go out on the land and educate your family or go out there and spiritualize, go have a spiritual experience. All of these things are protected under our treaties the uh, right to educate our citizenry out on the land. And so when you no longer have this relationship, you get this kind of attitude among the states that the tribes exist in that we no longer have any rights. Everything falls under state law. So even though the tribes still had treaty rights, because it didn't terminate the treaty rights, it only terminated this federal relationship with the tribes. But the states, I think they viewed it as now we are in charge of everything. And so what the effect was is that our treaty rights were being violated. People would go out and they would try to treaty fish. And the state boys would come along and say, hey, you can't do that. You know, you guys were terminated. How do you deal with that as a tribal fisher person who really doesn't have the backing of your tribe anymore because your tribe has been pretty much deflated and you no longer have the federal government watching your back, so to speak, even though they have done a terrible job of watching our back for ages. In fact, they've been doing bad things to us. And what do you do? Essentially, you try to stand up for yourself. Your stuff gets impounded. They take your weapons, they take your boat, and they tell you you can't do it. And then the only recourse that you have is one, keep doing it and keep getting bullied or take them to court, which is what in the case of the Menominee Nation, they did. They said, okay, enough's enough. You terminated our relationship, but you did not terminate our treaty rights. Let's go to court. Let's settle it. And so they did. And they ended up getting their status back uh, as a federally recognized tribe. And they also had their treaty rights reaffirmed. And I think that was a very important example for the understanding that people have, and especially at that time, because states' rights have always won over tribal rights. 
And that's because it's one of the first lessons that we talk about when I teach tribal law and government. I tell the students, I ask them, as far as federal government goes, where do federal elected officials come from? They come from the states or they come from the tribes? Well, of course, they come from the states, right? So states' rights will always win over tribal rights because the people who are creating federal legislation are coming from the states and they are always going to stick up for states' rights over tribal rights. It's a bias in the system. Yeah, a bias that's been there from the very start. You know, if there was any effort, any question about the terms of a treaty, who was ultimately the ones deciding the interpretation? It was colonial governments. That's right. And we still don't have any Native people who have served on the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, there you go. I mean, if law is going to be law at the highest level in the United States federal system, it has to pass through the Supreme Court. And then as we know, like with Roe versus Wade coming into the spotlight yet again, even after it goes to the Supreme Court, after years of precedence, we still know that it could be in jeopardy, mm-hmm. right? Because it all comes down to a majority of people sitting on the Supreme Court. I'm going to come back to this kind of like activism and fight for treaty rights in just a second. But first, I just want to talk about that, you know, at the same time that termination policy was rolling out or occurring, Urban Indian Relocation Program began. Can you share a bit about what that program was about? So the Bureau of Indian Affairs had this Urban Indian Relocation Program where they were encouraging Native people to go to urban locations, big cities, Chicago, Detroit, Denver, you name it. That's why we have these big Indian centers, right, in these big cities, and why we have this milieu of pan-Indian identity. We had Indian people from everywhere, moving everywhere. It was a very interesting time to be Indian in the United States because you met a hell of a lot of other Indian people. But at the same time, the promises that were made about, hey, come to the big city, get a good job, you know, support your family, become a smashing success in the U.S. And all those promises, they really were empty promises. They didn't tell you that if you come to the big city, most of the money that you make is going to be spent on trying to survive in the big city. And good luck in getting back home or sending any money home. So a lot of the folks that ended up coming to the big city, the only way that they were able to survive was by going back home. My grandmother, for instance, she was one of those people who spent some time down in Detroit with her brother and her uncle, and her job was to cook and clean while they went out and worked at the uh, car manufacturer, you know, in the factories. And they would come home, they would eat, they would sleep, they would get up, they would do it all over again. They were living in a one-bedroom studio apartment in Detroit. And that was life. They were not making a lot of money. There was no, you know, smashing success there. And the only way that they could really afford to do that is every once in a while, they would go back home, they would load up on groceries, and often their groceries were from treaty rights. They had people going out fishing and hunting and gathering, and then they would load up with food and they'd head back to Detroit. And so they had their support network back home. But for those folks who weren't able to get back home and who were stuck in the big city, there was an immense pressure for them to now start taking advantage of non-tribal programs, start making inroads into non-tribal society. And so you, you start seeing a greater reliance on state social services. So that's really where you start seeing a lot of Native families becoming more accustomed to dealing with the state government programs than tribal government programs or federal programs. It was a program, again, that was probably well-intended for some or by some, 
but it had some serious consequences in further eroding our tribal governments because now they were sapping some of our citizens, some of our brightest and best, most intelligent people, skilled people, taking them away from our tribal communities and transplanting them in the city. And I'm not saying that urban Indians or, you know, reservation Indians are better or worse than each other. But what I'm saying is that how do we know that those people who went from our reservation communities to these urban centers couldn't have been our next tribal chair people or medicine people or, you know, the leadership that we needed back home, not away from home? Again, you can't go back in time. You can't say, okay, well, let's do it all over again. But I always get this sense, same with boarding schools. My mom was in boarding school. My grandfather was in boarding school. And I think about what they did to them and how they impacted their lives. They stole them from us. And that's what this program, this urban relocation program, this was, again, a theft of our people from our tribes and our communities. Great. We have these really tight-knit urban family centers now. And I, I don't want to take anything away from the communities that were created because that was about survival and thriving. Indian people adapt. We're very resilient. And so when they went there, they made their home, but they also left a home. So it created a new pressure on our tribes to now try to think about how do we interact with our urban centers. And often those urban centers, they don't have the same needs as the reservation-based centers. I saw that a lot when I was doing community organizing around the food system in Detroit and the urban native community there. There were very similar statistics amongst urban natives and folks that were living back in their tribal communities, but very distinct experiences as well. You know, it's quite something. I want to, I guess, come back to this piece that you were just saying about these really strong intertribal communities that began forming because intertribal activism really began to grow towards the end of this era especially within these really diverse urban native communities. The American Indian Movement, also known as AIM, and other red power movements formed during this era to fight back against termination policies, against police harassment, and other forms of racism. And these movements advocated for tribal sovereignty to be re-recognized and for treaty rights to be reaffirmed. One of my favorite examples from this era is of the survival schools that came out of the American Indian movement. From my understanding, these schools were formed to give Native children a cultural and political education that they would not have otherwise received, but they needed in order to survive these times. Do you know anything about these schools? Yeah, so let's talk about a little bit about civil rights. What does that even mean in a, a tribal context? If you're coming from a traditional tribal community where your understanding of your place in the universe is based on medicine wheel teachings, seven grandfather teachings, seven generations philosophy, the idea of civil rights is in that context. The idea of being civil to each other is based on your cultural traditions. It's intact knowledge, and it's very spiritually based. The idea of civil rights in that context looks very different than if you go away from that epicenter of tribal culture and go out into an area where the understanding of civil rights is spread across different racial groups, across different socioeconomic groups. It's really westernized sense of civil rights and the idea of being an American citizen, being a resident of a, a metropolis like Detroit. I mean, that's a whole different ball game, right? Where the values 
and the understanding of who you are in relationship to the world around you is very different. You are really fighting for something. You're fighting for a piece of the identity, right, of being part of this other thing that we have become, which is American Indian. We've gone from being Anishinaabe Ojibwe to now we're jumping into the middle of this American Indianism. And so by becoming American Indians and joining that idea, we find ourselves in the midst of this struggle for being treated with respect in this new society. And this society is hierarchical. The values are based on wealth. We're surrounded by capitalism. And so much of what we start to understand ourselves as fighting for is a piece of the pie. The American dream instead of the sense of ourselves that we had within a tribal context. So all that being said, the Red Power movement really does, in many ways, spring from the urbanization or the pan-Indianism that we experienced going all the way back to the boarding school era. When our ancestors went to boarding schools, they met other Indians. And they often intermarried and they would move to these locations. So it started back then. Then with the urbanization programs, it was yet another piece of that. And I think in many ways put more pressure on these families to fight for their place within the larger society. So the schools, the survival schools, when they come into being, Rough Rock Demonstration School for the Diné Navajo community, that was like one of the first ones. And what they were trying to do there was to revitalize their culture. They wanted to teach language. They wanted to teach ceremonies. They really wanted to instill a sense of what traditional Native culture would be for these folks who some of them had drifted away. Some of them saw it coming. They didn't want it to drift away. They wanted to keep it strong. So there was intact culture and traditions within families that had the opportunity to remain within that cultural community and have their ceremonies intact and have their language. But they also saw what was happening to their relatives who had gone away and started drifting away from those core teachings about who they were. And so I think that's really what those schools were intended for. And I think they, in many ways, have done a part of the job of helping us retain who we are. Although the evolution of tribal schools, that's been both good and bad. Some of the survival schools, some of the tribal schools, they started off in a good way, but then it always seems like when they take the money from the feds or the states and, you know, you get the Bureau of Indian Affairs or Bureau of Indian Education involved and you get the state of Michigan, Department of Education involved, then you get all the laws that come with it, all of the things that you have to do, and it no longer feels like what it was intended to do. In some ways, I love that we have the resources available. I like that our children that go to these schools, that they have good lunches, that they have nice desks and playground equipment. I mean, I can remember Finnelson over in Sault Ste. Marie. Finnelson was a public school, part of the Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan public school system, but it was the closest school to the reservation in Sault Ste. Marie on Chunk Road. So if you were Indian, it was kind of like you went to that school if you lived in that part of town. And it was by default the Indian school. And we had the junkiest playground equipment. You mean, if you slid down the slide, you would cut your hand on the rust. It was that bad. The 
building was dilapidated. And then we always, you know, us kids, when we were there, we would walk across town, of course. And then we'd see these other schools that were like the bright, shiny schools for white kids. And you knew where the wealth was. You knew who they valued. And so we had this sense then. But, you know, later on, our tribe, we had gotten that property under tribal control. And then it became a tribal school initially. Then we had this Bureau of Indian Affairs school, Bureau of Indian Education programming for our school. And then it became a charter school in the state of Michigan. So it's a real, it's a hybrid school. And if you go there now, they have Anishinaabe language and cultural programming. It's a really cool looking school. It's all been renovated and remodeled and additions put on. And you'd never know that kids like me when I was a kid, that I had that terrible experience of education for Indians the way it was then. And I'm not saying that it was all bad. There were some really good things, but the good things were the relationships. It was my friends and the people who cared about us, but it certainly wasn't the building. And it certainly wasn't the care that the community had for us. They didn't care about us. And it was obvious. What we didn't realize when we were kids is that it was because we were Indian. We just thought, why don't they care about us? Yeah, I feel like this, all this, both thinking about their survival schools, what you're talking about, it's so relevant still today. At least for me as an Indigenous person, I feel like I've had to have this really deep knowledge of treaty rights and of politics in order to navigate the society and to continue practicing my culture and eating my foods. And where else am I going to find that knowledge to liberate myself except for in my own community? Yeah. I mean, everything has an origination story, doesn't it? And sometimes when we have drifted away for whatever reason, we don't know those origination stories. And so we have to go back and find them. We have to ask ourselves, how did we get here? How did our family not speak Anishinaabemwin anymore? How did that happen to us? My kids might be saying, how did we start revitalizing native language in our family? That might be where they're at. So, I mean, that's the thing. As we continue to grow and evolve, we're going to have a longer history. We're going to need to know these things for those future generations. And they're in our treaties. Our ancestors who were writing those treaties back then, it was imperfect. The treaty-making process is something that we did prior to colonization, but our treaties were different. When we made treaties, is how they say, when we entered into this compassionate relationship with plants and animals, they pitied us. They knew that we would not survive if it were not for their compassion. So we made promises that we would care for them. That's what our role is. The first treaty was between us and the plants and animals. We have to think about that then in relationship to these other intertribal treaties, like between the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee or the Anishinaabe and the Lakota. And how did we enter into human-to-human relationships and still honor those values that we had and remembering that it's not just between humans, but that we have these obligations to plants and animals as we're dealing with other humans. It's all carrying forward in that treaty-making history. And so then when we start making these treaties with the colonizers, the foreign nations, the French and the British, especially in this area, we're carrying that forward and trying to think, how do we now make these new treaties between us and them and these folks having different values? So my band, Wawiyea, the circle in Ojibwe, we have a song called we didn't understand. We didn't understand what they didn't understand, right? We assumed that they seen the world like we seen the world. 
And in some ways, that's on us. Maybe one of our shortcomings is that we trusted people that couldn't be trusted to have the same values of this relationship with Mother Earth and plants and animals and other human beings. And so because of that, we later figure out that, well, they didn't value that. They did lay waste. They did break our trust. Even though we have these imperfect treaties, there was good intent on behalf of us and maybe some on behalf of other folks. But there was also a disconnection of values. They may have valued something differently than we did. And so it's had dire consequences for us and them. And that's the thing. Treaties are not just for us. It's for them, too. When people talk about treaty rights, they often think about it as treaty rights for Indian people. But we forget that the non-Indian people, their treaty right is being here. They get to be the state of Michigan. They get to live here with us. What happens to us happens to them. For us, it's a difference of rights. We have certain rights that we've retained. They have rights that were granted. That's the thing that people often forget is that our rights are inherited. They come from our ancestors. Their rights come from us. We've granted them rights to do certain things. I like to remind people that no human population on the face of the earth would give away their own country. It's absurdity. It's your identity. It's who you are. You would never say, hey, you know what? This is Anishinaabea king. Come take it because we don't need it for our identity and our life. We would never say that. Just like the French would never say, come take France. We don't need it. It's an absurdity. People need to understand that. It seems like a, a no-brainer, but people don't get that, right? So we would never say that, first of all. And so when they, in fact, assumed that they could do that, we have to remind them that, no, what we said is that this area right here, this area here, you don't get to come there. That's our graves. That's our homes. That's our wild rice fields. That's our gardens, our hunting areas. That's where we get our deer. That's our strawberry fields. You don't get to come there. But you know what? There's all this other place you can go. I don't mind. As long as you enter into this area with the same values that we hold for this area, go ahead. You can be here. There's lots of space. We just want you to be here like we be here, right? And so when they didn't be here like we be here, that's the problem. They assumed that after the treaty signing was done, that they now owned that place, that we said, go ahead and be here like we be here. And they assumed that we confined ourselves to this little area where we said, you guys can't come. So the whole idea of reservationalization was misunderstood. It's completely one-sided. It's essentially saying that they made a deal with us that we would live within this confines of this reservation community like prisoners and surrounded by fences and that we would no longer enjoy the rights that we had to interact with Mother Earth the way we had for thousands of years. And so that's a problem. Now, compound that with the values that they brought to that place. They didn't have the same values, and so they have really messed it up. They claimed it. They rearranged it. Now we're headed for a catastrophe. That's the problem. And only by incorporating the traditional knowledge that we had, that relationship that we brought forward from thousands of years of interaction with this land and these plants and animals, do they get to fix this? When we extend our hand and we say, you know what? We get it. You guys, you messed up. Colonization is oppression. Colonization is destruction. 
you messed up. You should have come here with your hand out extended in peace and friendship. And we would have gladly had you come here and live with us the way we lived. But you didn't. You came here with long blades, chamokban. You came with greed and hatred. And because you came with that, you've messed things up. But there's still time to change the road we're on, right? There's still time. We're running out of time, but there's still time. We have to get back to this idea that they're salvageable, that this relationship with the United States and Canada and for indigenous people in other parts of the world, that there's still time to fix these things. It's not doomsday. We're not past. We're getting closer. But I truly believe that Mother Earth will get rid of us before she dies. We just have to choose, do we get to stay here with her and live? Yeah, like life will continue on, but will we continue on? I want to go back to another thing about the termination era. So are there examples of activism during that era that really stand out to you that we haven't mentioned yet? Even with the idea of termination, right? We had some leadership in our communities who truly understood what the potential consequences were of termination. And even though there was an immense pressure to terminate the relationship on behalf of the federal government and these folks who were trying to weasel out of their responsibilities, we had some pretty amazing leaders who said, you know what? One, we don't like the paternalism of the federal government, but we also understand that if you pull back from this relationship, that we were going to lose a lot of resources that now our communities have become dependent on because of reservationalization, because of these previous policies that have created this situation that we find ourselves in. So they had a lot of forward thinking. They were some visionary leaders who, you know, talk about activism and politics. They understood it the best of the best. They were trying to look forward seven generations down the road and saying, what's going to happen because of this? How is termination going to help our descendants seven generations from now? And they truly said, no, ain't happening. You know, and they stopped it in many situations. They were able to figure out a way to stop the wheels of termination from turning. People in my tribe, the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, there were people who were sold on this idea of termination. They're like, yeah, man, that might be good for our tribe. Let's go become assimilated into U.S. society and take advantage of this opportunity. And then there were others who was like, no, are you crazy? This is an absurdity. You know, you think it was bad before. Just wait. Watch what's going to happen to these tribes that do get terminated. We had some visionary leaders. So there's that kind of activism. But then there's that other kind of activism that's going on. You have these hunters, these gatherers, these fisher people who, you know, they said, we have treaty rights. We have aboriginal rights. And I am going to continue to be a human being the way I was taught to be a human being, regardless of what relationship exists between a tribe and the federal government or not. And they did. And they went out and they hunted, they fished, they gathered, they gardened, and they did what they've always done. And it was the greatest form of resistance because it was when they do that, they were saying, I am a free human and I live under what we would consider our traditional values. And ultimately, what we realize, and I think was realized even in the court of law, even under Western law, is that our treaties were still intact that our aboriginal rights were still intact. We never gave those up in treaty, and so we retained those. And so I think where termination was devastating for many tribal communities and many tribal families and individuals, 
there were those activists out there who continued to do what they do. And they really, you know, sometimes they got beat up. Sometimes they got their stuff impounded. Sometimes they got killed. That was the sacrifice that they made. In many ways, they brought us through an era that was terrible for our communities, but it was necessary for them to do what they did to get us through it. I have people in my family. My wife's uncle, he was, you know, Ron Pockhan, pretty famous in St. Ignace area. And he continued to hunt, fish, and gather and garden and do whatever he did. And he refused to back down. And many times he was threatened. Many times, you know, they had violence that came to their communities and their families. That was brave. Man, they had to be brave. Because I'll tell you what, when I got back out of the Army in 1990, I was out fishing, spear fishing in Betawassee between Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and Sugar Island in the St. Mary's River. And my cousins and I, we were out there spear fishing. And even in 1990, people were intimidating us by taking shots. I don't think they were trying to shoot us. If they were, they were really bad shots. But they were taking shots and trying to scare us. And so, you know, you never know. It could be someone drunk on the shore. So the best thing we could do is just hunker down in the boat, turn the light off. But that was scary. Even before then, you know, when I was a little guy, geez, my brother and I, we were, I was maybe six years old. My brother was eight years old. We were out spearfishing with my uncles and their cousins. And that was before we got federal recognition for our tribe. And so the Coast Guard would come up on us and the Coast Guard would, you know, if they caught us spearfishing, they would take all of our equipment. And so what my uncles would do is they'd throw all the equipment in the water. And then they would motor away from there, or more like or away from there. And our job, when the Coast Guard took off, our job, my brother and I, we had to dive in down and get it. Now, let me tell you, for a six-year-old and an eight-year-old to dive into dark waters, <laughs> you know, at night, that's kind of scary. But even little kids had a job in activism trying to retain our rights to feed ourselves the way that we have always done. Thanks for sharing those stories. It reminds me of the fish wars on the West Coast. And it seems like every year I hear examples of Indigenous peoples facing violence or threats while they're practicing their treaty rights. Just last year in 2020, there was the lobster dispute involving the Mi'kmaq First Nation and Canadian fishers. You know, this particular incident followed a set of decisions from the Supreme Court of Canada, where in the late 90s, the Canadian court reaffirmed what was already outlined in the Halifax Treaties, the Halifax Treaties dating back to the mid-1700s. But those treaties outlined that First Nations had the right to fish for both subsistence and to make a moderate living from fishing. And decades after this court decision was reaffirmed, in the 90s, in 2020, the Mi'kmaq First Nation launched its own self-regulated fishery to exercise these fishing rights. But there was an immediate outcry from non-Indigenous fishers. They stated it was because of concerns about that it would lead to overfishing. But these same non-Indigenous fishers responded with vandalism, arson, poisoning lobsters, and physical assault. You know, similar to the stories you shared, I think it was just this last year in northern Michigan on the border with Wisconsin. Someone I heard about was facing threats and violence out practicing their treaty rights. So this is still a very relevant issue today. 
yeah, this is real. It's still happening. There's still people who are very jealous of tribal rights. And the thing is, and you, we know this, right, from the January 6th insurrection at the federal capitol, that when it's non-Indians, especially white people in this society, they get a pass on violence. The law does not come down as heavy on them or as quickly. I mean, how long has it taken them just to even adjudicate these people? I mean, come on, let's be real. We know that a lot of those people involved in that violence are never going to face the kind of penalties they should. Let an Indian do that. Let a non-white person in our society do that kind of violence, and we'll get shot on sight. We know that when it comes to the relationship between Native and non-Native people in our society, that there is a tendency for non-Native people to be treated better by the law. That's problematic because, you know, it's supposed to be one law for all, and we know it's not. There is no justice. You know, the whole uh, protest idea, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, right? And, you know, we have 295 treaties, 295 treaties, which are the supreme law of the land under the U.S. Constitution at the same level as the U.S. Constitution that guarantee we will have food provisions for our communities, that we will, in fact, be able to eat based on the way we hunt fish, gather garden, and we even had new stuff introduced into our treaties because it was these new technologies at the time that were coming in, milling, farming equipment. Those were kind of some new things for us, but we even had the insight to have those included in our treaty rights. So that, I think, is really important for us to think about. And then the idea that it wasn't just our traditional foods that were guaranteed by treaty. We also wanted non-traditional foods. So, you know, there were these new things that came to our communities like oats and pigs, this other type of food, this colonial food. We even had the insight to guarantee those in treaties. You know, I'm a big advocate of decolonizing our diet, but at the same time, I value treaty rights. Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue of the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. Because when we first met many moons ago now, you were embarking on a new project called Decolonizing Diet Project. And this was so inspiring to me as I was starting my career and getting connected to the larger indigenous food movement. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that project? We always had this kind of yearly thing that we did. When I was down at Central Michigan University and Native American programs there, we started this tradition where we would have this food taster. And we would prepare this huge meal and share it with the communities. They would come in, they would buy a plate, and it would be a fundraiser for the annual university powwow. And so when I came up to Northern Michigan University, we carried that tradition with us, my wife and I, and we incorporated it here. And the students loved it. The community loved it. So it became a local tradition here. So back in 2010, we were back in the kitchen and we were preparing food for this food taster in the fall. And I just asked this question, I was like, if our Native ancestors were here today and we were feeding them this food that we're preparing for the community as Indian food, would they be familiar with it? Would they say, that, yeah, this is our food? You know, I, I was just like thinking, no, probably not. You know, it's fry bread, there's celery soup, there's these other things that we're putting into it. I mean, they would be hard pressed to see it as their food that they were familiar with. And so I thought, well, what would it take for us to really engage in eating the foods that our ancestors would have eaten here in this area 
if they were here today. And so that became the Decolonizing Diet Project origination story. We explored that. We researched it for a year and a half. We put together these ideas about, you know, we researched the foods that were available. We figured out how to access them, how to determine if food was indigenous or not. You know, I mean, it was really important that we get it right. So we put a year and a half of research into it and worked out some details about how would we lead a project, a research project, a university research, and have it be a legitimate university-sponsored research project. And at that point in time, there was very few other projects like that. There was some community projects going on, right? But they weren't university research projects. So we got IRB approval. Then we set out to lead 25 people through this year-long process of eating indigenous foods on a daily basis at a level of 25% to 100% of their daily diet. And they also agreed to get annual physicals and quarterly checkups during and after. And they also agreed to take notes, whether that was daily journals or photos or video or whatever. And they also were supposed to increase their physical activity during that year working with whatever physician they were working with, whether it was the IHS or private facilities, and increase their physical activity to closer, closer to a level of activity that our ancestors might have been at in a pre-colonial context. And so with that, we had some very significant outcomes. We measured it on a biological, a cultural, and a legal political level. And we found that the people who participated on a group level had significant weight loss, statistically significant weight loss, which, you think about that, obesity in Indian country is rampant. Kamadbot's a real thing, and it causes heart disease and diabetes and two of the primary killers of Indian people. But we also had a significant decreases in triglycerides. And so again, heart disease. The two things that we really impacted on a biological level was very significant for us. And we had both Native and non-Native people, and it worked for both. So non-Native people... We're gaining as much benefit as Native people on a biological basis, right? So that was really cool. On a sociocultural level, we learned a lot. We learned things about hunting, fishing, gathering, gardening, about socializing, about ways to trade, to go to the marketplace and find indigenous foods, ways to transform the marketplace. It was really good and things that we've still retained today. Even if people are no longer strictly following the Decolonizing Diet Project on a daily basis, They'll never forget their experience. They'll never forget the teachings that they learned. And on a legal and political level, we exercised our rights. We had to really sit down and examine what can we do? How can we do it? Exercising our treaty rights, exercising our aboriginal rights, even exercising our rights as citizens of the United States or the state of Michigan. What can we do to access indigenous foods within all of these citizenships, right? These statuses. Because you and I, we're citizens of tribes, we're citizens of non-tribal nations, we're citizens of states and provinces. I mean, we have a lot of citizenships that we carry with us. So we have rights in within all of those citizenships. And so I think that was a very important piece of the experience. Yeah. And I've heard from multiple people that either were following the project or participated in it that continue to be impacted by that work that you all did together and what you learned as part of that process. So what are you working on right now? So we've had some offshoots from the Decolonizing Diet Project. One we did, it was a traditional ecological knowledge sabbatical. So uh, Tina, my wife and I, we went around and we visited with people around the Great Lakes region. 
And we interviewed them, asked them some similar questions, took photos, and we're working on a book that will be out hopefully soon. I just got to, you know, got to write, you got to write about that experience. And in there, we'll also include our memoirs on a personal level from the Decolonizing Diet Project. So our experiences from our journals. Well, during that same time, I completed that treaty study of the food provisions. And I looked at it from both a pan-Indian perspective, pan-tribal perspective, and then also from an Anishinaabe perspective. I always want to know what was the Anishinaabe relationship and treaties. And then my uh, most recent undertaking, I'm working on the what's called Great Lakes Indigenous Materials Poop Study, P-O-O-P. So you heard that right. Uh, called GLIMPS for short. And I figure, well, if it goes in one end, it has to come out the other end. And so I have this interest in what did our ancestors do with our poop? Because it's part of the natural process. And so I decided I was going to put together this kind of three-component study, not as extensive as the Decolonizing Diet Project, but just to satisfy my own initial curiosity. So we're doing a literature review, still working on that, trying to do some interviews with folks who have traditional knowledge about that. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of people willing to talk about that. And or there's just not a lot of people who know that stuff anymore. And then lastly, some light experimentation. I'm actually using the materials with my own self and going out and documenting my interaction with these materials and the experience. And so then I'll present on that and that'll become part of that book as well. Awesome. All right, Marty. So one last question. I'm inviting you to a dinner honoring all of our relations. What are you bringing to the feast and why? Wow. Yeah, that's a great invitation. And you know, one thing I will bring is Sema, right? And I know Sema is not necessarily a food, but it was a gift that we were given to give when we are asking for life. And I view food as spirit beings. And those spirit beings, whether they're plants or animals or minerals that we get from Mother Earth, they are life. And so that is what I'll bring. Will I bring other stuff to that feast? Oh, yeah. I'm going to bring some good DDP foods, right? I'm expecting that if I'm going to a traditional dinner and Shiloh Maples is there and other people, other friends that are into indigenous food, that there's going to be a lot of stuff there already. Someone's going to have wild rice there, no doubt. Someone's going to have the crawlers and the flyers and the swimmers. And maybe what I'll do is I'll call up and say, hey, Shiloh, what's not going to be on the list? I'll bring that as well. Well, Miigwech, for generously sharing your time and your knowledge with us, Marty. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, Miigwech for the invitation. This was fun. Bama P. Take care, Shiloh. Bama. Spirit Plate Podcast is an honoring of all the Indigenous communities across Turtle Island who are working to preserve and revitalize their ancestral foodways. In this space, we will talk about Indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Thank you for listening to Termination Era, Episode 8 of Spirit Plate. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Dr. Martin Reinhardt. You can learn more about Dr. Reinhardt's Decolonizing Diet Project and find additional resources about Indigenous foods by visiting the public Facebook group called Decolonizing Diet Project. You can subscribe to Spirit Plate anywhere you get your podcasts. And we'll be back next week with Dr. Elizabeth Hoover to talk about the era of self-determination and how the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, one of the many pieces of legislation from this era, has provided a path to seed rematriation. 
Throughout season one, we'll discuss some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the indigenous food sovereignty movement is necessary. A critical understanding of the journey that led us here needs to become a more common understanding before American society can give life to a new, more equitable food system. And a more equitable food system requires narrative equity. Indigenous people must get to define their own relationship to land and food and tell the stories of their work themselves. Through interviews with seed keepers, chefs, farmers, and community members, this podcast will share what food justice and sovereignty looks like for Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. As your host, I'm inviting you to the table and into a deeper conversation. I hope that you'll be inspired to think about your own connection to place and how this has influenced your relationship to food. I also hope you'll feel moved to build genuine relationships with the original caretakers of the place you reside and consider how you can stand in solidarity with their communities. If you would like to learn which indigenous communities' homeland you reside upon, visit native-land.ca. That is N-A-T-I-V-E-L-A-N-D.ca. Spirit Plate is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Spirit Plate team, producer and music composer Kat Yang, audio editors Kat Salinas and Bethany Sands, researcher Giselle Kennedy-Lord, and intern Indigo Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glassier, sound engineer and music designer Max Cuddlechuck, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, production assistant Melissa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, at Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. Until next time, bama pee.